all welcome to my second episode of the talk series uh, product leadership in 2021 today i am joined by rajesh nedlikar he is the chief product advisor at prodify and uh, he has uh, recently co-authored a book which is started build what matters uh, where ben foster and rajesh nedlikar they talk about uh, delivering key outcomes uh, with vision led product management Rajesh has 15 plus years of experience in product management and he has helped many companies uh, to build the product management framework and processes in in their company. Uh <clears throat> I will let Rajesh speak to himself a little bit more. Uh Rajesh, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to participate in this talk series. and uh, i know you are a busy man so i really appreciate you taking the time out thank you all over to you no thank you and i'm really excited to be here and thank you for having me and for doing this for the product community um yeah just a quick high level on my background um i am an engineer turned mba turned product guy so i uh, grew up down here in texas went to college at ut austin did electrical engineering went to go work at accenture for 5 years after school half of that was as a software engineer and architect and then half of that as a business analyst uh within the government practice so you know that ba role was kind of my first step into product and so like you said been doing it for more than 15 years now um went to business school from from accenture up at michigan ross to transition into the world of startups so worked for a student run company that got acquired uh after we graduated and then started my own company my second year of business school uh with a classmate and uh we had a very kind of big focus on sustainability so our our product our first product was a facebook app that lets you compare your energy uses to friends and family and so uh spent about a year and a half trying to sell that to utility companies and home energy professionals and then it got engaged and decided that a salary would be nice and so uh that's when i moved out to to your neck of the woods arlington virginia and i joined opower as a product manager as another company that was doing something uh in this energy efficiency space and uh that was where i met uh ben foster who was the vp of product and design and ben had come from the west coast to be the product executive at opower he had worked for for marty kagan uh at ebay and so i didn't know it but i lucked out and kind of grew up under the marty kagan school of thought at, at opower as a product manager and that was my first like step into the official title of product management even though i'd been doing some other things for many years um Uh from there I went to a fintech startup in DC as well as a senior product manager and we got acquired about a year after I joined uh, the company as Hello Wallet we made financial wellness products that were sold as employee benefits um and uh, so I ran the product team for about a year after the acquisition and then the company that bought us Morningstar asked me to come out to Chicago and I took over uh, a broader financial wellness portfolio it was about 40 million dollars in revenue and had a team of about 20 people that was like product managers, product operations and technical project managers and um really enjoyed my time at Morningstar, learned a lot about the fintech space, uh but I missed the world of startups and so I started advising on the side and I really enjoyed it. Um did that through 1871 up in Chicago and um so when we decided to move back to Austin a few years ago, uh we I reached out to Ben and uh Ben had you know kind of retired the day of the opower ipo about 7 years ago now and started doing some of this ad hoc advisory coaching work uh with a lot of startups and so i reached out to him and it just happened to be really good timing so um we ended up taking over his practice because he went on to be the chief product officer with one of the companies he was working with so i did that about 3 years ago and so like you said in the past 3 years i've worked with about 30 companies as an advisor coach and sometimes interim product leader 
Um, and collectively, uh, Prodify has worked with about 75 companies over the past seven years. And the three big areas that we kind of help companies with, the first one is like vision and strategy. Where's the product headed? How are we going to get there? Why will our product win? Um, and, uh, you know, we, we had done so much of that work that we created the vision-led product management framework a couple of years ago and then wrote Build What Matters last year to kind of provide a lot more detail uh, on the, the thoughts and the ideas behind it. Um, the second big thing that we do with teams is product team development. So we have a hiring service. We help teams hire their first product manager, their eighth, their 15th. Um, and then we offer coaching services, everyone from product executives to individual product managers to entire product teams. Uh, and then the last big thing that we help companies with is what I'd call more on the product operations side, which is like, how do ideas turn into product? And that's everything from process to tools, to org structure, to skill sets, and all the things that go into the uh, product operations world. Wow, that's uh, quite a journey in the product management domain. Uh, really appreciate you sharing the story here. And I, I'm more interested uh, to learn a little bit about the book that you have recently published, Build What Matters, in which you talk about vision-led product management. So I want to just kind of understand like how you came about this framework of vision-led product management and um, how you decided to put it down in a book. So uh, if you can share some thoughts on that, that would be great. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, one of the good things about joining Ben a few years ago in, in the sort of like product advising and coaching business was we would geek out like, I don't know, probably once a month or something, we would just talk about things that he was seeing with clients, things that I was seeing. We talk about our historical experiences being like, you know, full-time product people. And as we started, kept talking, we had started identifying a bunch of commonalities and patterns and, um, you know, from that, we, we realized that there were a lot of the same challenges that product teams were facing. And that's sort of what led to, to what we talk about in the first chapter of the book is what we call sort of the 10 dysfunctions of product management. Right. And like every good product manager, we wanted to be super clear on what problem were we setting out to solve. And those were the sort of sets of problems that we realized were common and that the framework was intended to address. And so uh, the genesis behind the book was really, uh, you know, we felt like we had learned a lot and as much as we were trying to, you know, share it with clients and we started creating a lot of internal artifacts that were like worksheets and templates and guides to help them apply some of the concepts that are best practices that we had learned. Um, we realized that having, you know, creating the framework and then adding the book on top of it was, it might be helpful for the rest of the product community. And I think for those of you who haven't read the book yet, like, I think the one thing that you'll note if you do start reading it is um, we didn't want it to read like a textbook. And so rather than just present the theory and say, well, this is the framework and good luck trying to use it, we, we wanted it to be very actionable. And so we did like kind of two things there. One was we created the set of like worksheets, templates and guides that went along with it. And there's actually a document that you can get access to that has like chapter by chapter resources. So if you wanna try something that you've read about in one of the chapters, there's like a, a worksheet or a, a template that you can use. The second thing we did is we just tried to tell a lot of stories for how that framework was applied in the real world, where it worked, where it didn't, lessons learned, what, what led us to create one part of the framework. And in the book, we, we have a lot of case studies and there's a combination of our own experiences, our personal stories, uh, as well as a few clients who were willing to share their story about sort of how the framework helped them in their business uh, as they scaled. So. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, I, I read the book and uh, the, uh, especially the 10 dysfunctions that you have mentioned in the first chapter. I think uh, the stories and those dysfunctions, I think those, those feel so relatable, you know, I mean, being in the product management field and having experienced uh, 
different aspects of product management it feels so relatable and that story does come out from from the book uh, which is great and that, that's that's what kind of says that the book is winning uh, <clears throat> if we jump to the uh, current times uh, you know uh, last year has posed a uh, lot of challenges in the product management field because uh, product management by itself uh, inherently is a very engaged role wherein uh, the product management team has to interact with sales and marketing customer success market research team and the user experience team and uh, so many different uh, cross functional collaborations are required but due to the current times uh, people are forced to work from home and uh, even bill gates says that that 30% of the office time is gone forever <laughs> so uh, I, i just wanted to kind of uh, uh, understand that how you see things uh, and especially how can a product leader dig out something from the book that you have just published um, to to cope with this change and yeah, no, it's a great question um i think that that before i answer it i'll just cover one topic that i think is relevant which is like what does it mean to be a product leader right mm-hmm. typically the role entails you know um some decision making authority within you know a, a jurisdiction and uh very little sort of like direct reports and like so you have to lead by influence often right and so i think one of the gaps and one of the reasons we we created the vision led framework is that we we felt that there had been a little bit of a pendulum swing on the agile side of things to a place where planning was almost seen as a bad thing and the end state you know direction or a long term direction or an end state vision was like kind of uh, irrelevant because you would just continue to iterate and and you know op, you know kind of like uh react to customer feedback or user feedback and that was how you were going to find product market fit and build build big build a big business on top of of your product right and um you know the reality is uh it's probably unlikely that you can iterate your way to like product market fit or find like great success you know there has to be some combination of like innovation and iteration and like that's kind of one of the the, the framework that we present in the book and um ben uh, ben uses a good analogy which is like uh you know if you think about like how a lizard has evolved over millions of years like it went from an amoeba to a lizard but it took like a million years and that's like an example of how long <laughs> iterative changes would take and and no company has that much time to wait right and so i think one of the the key aspects of being an effective product leader is being able to articulate that direction of where is the product headed why is that the right place why do we feel like that you know what bets are we making about what's going on in the market and what do we think is going to be true 2 3 4 years down the road like um and, and then how do we think we're going to get there and realize that vision and then and then using that as the context for roadmaps and things like that which is like hey here's the big picture before you just zoom into the near term stuff right and i think that's an important part of product leadership and uh obviously there's a storytelling aspect that goes with that as well which is being able to articulate uh and get get people inspired and excited about that direction and more importantly i think providing that context and in almost like guardrails to say this is the direction so that individual teams are innately empowered to make decisions on a daily basis and they know that if they're they're you know trying to make a right turn over here while everyone else is kind of like headed down this way that they they would like kind of run into some issues because they have that you know a lot of teams will call it the north star whether it's the north star metric or the north star like just directionally um and i think that's like a key part of where where product leadership i think has is is changing and i think the the other 
obviously kind of big thing that's going on is the role of product is starting to become more formalized and well-known and understood. It's, you know, we're a relatively new function in the world of, especially in the world of technology, right? Um, compared to sales or marketing or engineering, which like everyone knows and understands. And so I think, uh, you know, you're starting to see a lot more chief product officers take executive level roles and represent, you know, the voice of the product and hopefully the customer and, and all those things uh, in, a, in a particular way. And so I think that's another major change that you're seeing out there, um, which is, you know, product executives having to step up and join the, the sort of leadership team at a, at a company. That's right. That's right. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I think uh, the, the, the perspective of like the agile development, I really like that, that uh, due to agile development, most of the things are like happening in piecemeal and uh, the, the holistic picture sometimes could be missed out by working on small, small iterations. And it is very crucial for the product leadership to give proper direction to the team. And uh, that, that would be kind of vital for product leadership's success. Point well taken. And... Um, Coming back to the topic of uh, remote work now, uh, because of the remote work situation, the the possibility of working on the whiteboard, you know, so if we are working in the office, we have the whiteboard, we, we can use the sticky notes to kind of do simple voting for particular ideas and things like that. So uh, this uh, in-office communication or collaboration has in a way gone. It's all virtual now and it poses its own challenge. So what is your take on that? How, how is that affecting the product leadership? I think that, um, you know, I think people have adapted relatively well. It, 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 you know, it has, it's not easy and it's a big change, uh, but I think the proliferation of new tools that have come out, I think in the product space, I see a lot of our, our clients using Miro and obviously Slack and, uh, you know, Zoom and things like that um, has helped. Obviously, you can't replace a, white, a physical whiteboard that everyone can look at or the ability to like gauge body language during a meeting to know how someone might be reacting to a, a discussion or a presentation or something, right? Um, so I think that, you know, nothing will replace that. I think we have to get back into the office for some of those things. Um, but what, what I think has changed is, uh, you know, because of the virtual nature, I think a lot more things are happening in written format. And I, I would argue that that's probably a good thing because when you're forced to put things down on, on paper, it's a little bit harder to, to be unclear or it becomes easier to, to clarify your, your thoughts and stuff, not only as like an individual, but then as you start getting feedback and everyone has an artifact that they can look at and reference and ask questions about, uh, I think that's really helpful. And I think honestly, like when we were coming up with the vision-led framework, what we realized is that you know, a lot of the way that vision or big picture strategy gets communicated at organizations is verbally, it's almost like folklore, right? And in all hands, the CEO will get up and say, yep, here's a reminder, here's our mission and our vision and our, you know, what we're working on. And that's helpful, you know, in, in some extent, but sometimes that verbal communication is so high level that if you were to go ask 10 people, what's our vision and how are we going to realize it? You would probably get 10 different answers. And the issue with that is, it's in that next level of detail where a lot of the sort of debate and churn and priority, like, you know, prioritization issue, you know, kind of uh, concerns or issues come up and, and road mapping, especially, right? And so, you know, one of the things we sort of like feel was necessary as we created the framework was, 
you do need to get to that next level of detail of like, what is our vision, but not from how, like, it's not a bulleted list of features. It's like, how would our customers experience our product and like holistically, not just from the moment that they log in to sign out, but like, what about everything that happened before then? How did they find out about us? Why did they try us? Like all those things, right? And I think having that written artifact that says, this is the way that, this is the type of experience we want to articulate, I think is powerful, especially in a remote world where you know you work at a startup and you're growing and there's like three new hires a week. How are they getting ramped up? How do they have any sense of where the product is headed and all those things, right? And so I think it's an important consideration and, and like hopefully a good thing. Now, what it does create is a challenge, right? Now you got to find time to, to be a lot more thoughtful and write things down in a way that you might not have had to before where you're just, you know, in a meeting and could talk it through. And I think that um, those, those meetings are still necessary, right? Ideas form over time and they evolve. And like, you know, we think of some of these artifacts in the same way you think of a product, which is like in an agile way, you put out a version of it and you iterate on it because you get feedback and you tweak it. And maybe you realize you, you totally forgot a whole section that you need to articulate. But um, I think that's another big part of this, which is like, how do you, you know, written communication become more common. And so what are the artifacts that product teams are using these days to make sure they understand they're aligned on direction? Right. So in a way, what I hear from you is that it, it's in a way like good thing for product management community uh, that people are now writing down, making sure that their thoughts are clear enough to uh, like uh, explain it well. I think it's a good forcing function. I, I recognize that it's not always an easy thing to do. Uh, I myself just, even though we wrote the book last year, I know how much time it took us to write that book. And now we write, you know, we write follow on blog posts and like, uh, you know, do other things. And so I know that writing is not an easy skill and it is time consuming if you want to do it well. So um, I, I, you know, I'm not going to say that this has to be the only way and it should, you know, we should just switch to this forever because I think that you, you can't discount just talking and, and, you know, just being able to like kind of riff on ideas. But. Yeah, that's a good take. Yeah, definitely. Um, in the book, you also talk about like setting up the right product management processes and even the hiring uh, hiring uh, practices or how you can build that strategy. Um, how, how do you define that in the current times? Uh, has the, do you see that the hiring process should change or um, the product management processes should change? No, it's a great question, actually. Um, if I were going to zoom into hiring, um, like I mentioned, we have a hiring service, and so we help a lot of uh, people who have not hired product people before hire their first or you know second or third product person. And um, I would say that our process hasn't changed drastically. Um, one of the key things we do in that hiring process that I, I don't think has really changed that much from COVID is think really hard about what are the top one or two skills or experiences that we need to add to our team to like kind of help accomplish our, our goals for, for the next one or two years, right? Like it's not like, especially a startup, you're like, it's not like for 10 years, right? Um, and then using that as a way to sort of like obviously craft the job description and attract the, the person who would have those skills and be interested in the role, but also we would custom make a homework assignment that pressure tests that skill. Because I think one of the hardest things about hiring product people is the, the technical or craft skills are a little bit harder. They're not as objective as like an engineer who submits a, you know, a, a code assignment and someone could objectively kind of look at it and say, yes, I, I think the structure and the formatting is looking good. The thought, the thought process, scalability, like all those things, right? You have a rubric that you can look at. Well, with product management, because it's such a collaborative role, even if someone worked on a product that looked like it was doing really well externally, 
you don't know if they were writing momentum or what their role actually was. And so one of the things we really emphasize in the hiring of product people is, is something that helps you pressure test their actual abilities and craft skills and things like that and tailoring that to the um, to the role and, and what the needs of the company and this sort of like business is. But I, I'd say the one thing that's changed is obviously if you're going to ask someone to take that amount of time during a recruiting process to, to like, you know, think about some answers to some questions, like one, hopefully it's a good representative view of the type of work they'd actually do in the first few months of starting. And so I think from that perspective, it should be like a good thing that, that they get some exposure to it. But um, historically, what we used to do is we would ask people to come into a conference room and do like a little bit of a panel presentation and share showcase their thoughts on the assignment so that it wasn't just used to like uh, as one of like a, you know, check boxes to check of like, yes, this person did well. But it, because it's such a collaborative role, we would ask, you know, for example, the design and engineering team would do a panel interview and they'd say, okay, like now imagine you got this case study and you had to, you're doing a kickoff meeting with us and you want to explain that we need to build this new feature and here's why, like, go ahead. And they would ask all the questions that they would normally ask to the product person. And that way it's like, it's also representative of the culture and the type of personalities and things like that, right? So I think something like that has gotten a little bit harder to do, but what I have seen clients do is they still do it. It just might happen over Zoom and you don't have a whiteboard to go, go draw on as easily. Um, and so I'd say that's another sort of implication right now on the remote work side. And, and then of course, uh, you know, body language, I think is an important part in the hiring process and just being able to, um, gauge that and, and it's a lot harder to do over zoom uh than, than it is uh, you know in, in an office um right right that's true that's true um yeah remote interviews is going to have its own challenge uh, right. but uh yeah the the I, I like the framework that you're putting up that giving some home assignments and trying to get the panel interviews uh, done to gauge the not just general uh, skill set but also in general like how they collaborate and communicate would be something that would be important, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> moving to the leadership and decision making side, you know, um, it, it uh, how how can a leader be uh, equip himself uh, in in the current times to to be a better decision maker? So not, not just talking about the hiring or the product management processes, but in general, like if we speak broadly enough in the product management role, talking about the customer, uh, customer focused decisions or uh, internal decisions, uh, you know, how do you think that a leader should be equip himself to be take, uh, to be a better decision maker? Yeah, well, I think that there's probably two major things I would call out there, which is that they should have evidence and be transparent on their confidence level in some of the decisions they're making, right? Um, so if I was going to do, do a deep dive here on the evidence side of things as a leader, uh, what are the types of evidence you would use to make a decision? Well, I kind of feel like there's, there's three that we would normally talk about, right? There's quantitative, there's qualitative, and probably competitive. Um, which sort of touches on market on the market dynamics as well. And so qualitative, you know, obviously like voice of customer, like customer discovery interviews, whether you're talking to prospects or existing customers or power users or your customer advisory board, to me, nothing trumps conversations these days as an input into major decision making. Um, as much as, you know, we see a lot of product teams try to become more, you know, data informed or data driven or whatever the phrases that they want to use. 
you just don't always have the data. There's not enough quantitative metrics that can help you make some, some really big, especially at the vision and strategy level things, right? Um, I think that's like uh, harder to do. But on the quantitative side, obviously, like financials and just understanding how the sales pipeline and projections are looking for the business. Um, product usage metrics. So like who's logging in, who's not, what features are being used, what segments seem to be like, do we resonate with and where do we not? Those types of things I think are, are critical these days. Um, and then that last part is really like, you know, like, like I said, more competitive. So do, do we need to respond to a competitive threat? I think is the first kind of question in the decision-making process. And if so, how, what is the reason that are we, what are we really good at that we want to keep as our competitive differentiation? And how does that, how do we make sure that that like, you know, shines through during sales, marketing, demos, product onboarding, like design, like everything, right? Um, and I think that's like a, a major one on the competitive side. And so those are kind of like the evidence-based things that I think leaders need these days is to like be able to prove with, with some data, whether it's hard numbers or not, um, or, or just have that available to help make the decision. And then I think there's this confidence thing that I mentioned, which is like at the executive team level, uh, especially when you start talking about vision and strategy, where's the company going and where, where are we going to experience growth from and all that stuff? There's a crystal ball sort of like phenomenon there, right? They got to make some bets about what the future holds and where the market is headed and which segments are going to like, wh where can we win? Where can we not? And all those things, right? And I think one of the things that's probably worth calling out is, just being open and honest or explicit about how confident you are about certain decisions. And if you're not, you know, if it's low or medium, get, get down to the next level and say like, so what are the hypotheses or assumptions we're making that make this a risky decision to make without more information? And it's like, you know, there's almost a little bit of a loop there, right? Which is that if you say, oh, I'm not sure about X, Y, and Z, and then you say, oh, maybe I need to do more customer discovery interviews, or I need to go do some more market research or competitive analysis to, to help feel better. Um, and, and, you know, obviously there's, you know, you're never going to be hundred percent sure about any decision, but the idea would be that you feel pretty confident and that everyone else does because there's a shared understanding of the sort of like factors that were used to, to help come to that conclusion and that decision. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, you rightly pointed out that product management role is mostly in mostly kind of in a vagueness wherein you are testing the hypothesis. You do not necessarily have the good enough evidence, but the decision comes in on how you test the hypothesis and how you come up with the uh, results of testing those hypotheses and kind of take that as a guiding principle uh, moving forward. Yeah, and I'd say the other thing that has come up with a few clients and that that we had, that I had done myself kind of uh, in my time at Morningstar and stuff was like basically having a decision log because sometimes what happens is decisions are made and then later <laughs> someone says, why did we decide to do that? And sometimes literally it's been so long or so much has happened that even the people who are actively there were like, you know what, I actually don't remember. And so what, what we encourage teams to do now is actually, at, at least for major decisions, just jot down a few bullet points about sort of what what options were considered, what what was finally chosen, and like a little bit of rationale for why. And sometimes it's helpful, especially if you operate in an organization where the team is growing fast or team members are are kind of rotating quickly, right? Um, then sometimes having that historical context is helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a true story for us as well. <laughs> like in our company. Uh... We, we were discussing about one, one of the features and then uh, we were not able to recall like, why we, did we make that decision? And 
<laughs> we we just i mean it, it just felt so relevant that uh, i felt that okay we should have documented that somehow that how did we make that decision uh, and then in the current times of course we were not able to come up with any anything to justify that decision for the current times so we kind of changed on uh, what we were doing but that's a good point taken like having the decision logs will help you why you took that decision you know yeah and i'm not a big documentation fan so i always think about what's the lightest weight thing you could do like to right. me this is like what could you do in 3 or 5 minutes that just could save you hours later <laughs> you know <laughs> even uh, exactly on this which is and and that's just not to say that you don't reverse yeah. or, or like you know change a decision that was made but sometimes it's helpful to have a historical context of it right yeah yeah definitely it's it's helpful to have that context in some ways even if it's just like a few quick keywords uh, onto that decision log that that's helpful. Yeah, and I do think this is part of that product leadership which is like really rationalizing why things are being decided, right? And whether you write it down or not, I think no matter what you have to communicate the the rationale behind these decisions and that's an important part of the the product leadership role. Right. Yeah. That's great, great. Um I I mean so much of your conversation was very much relatable uh, to my experience at least. Uh, I'm sure many of the audience uh might also be uh, feeling the same uh, j- just to kind of wrap it up what, what advice would you give to the upcoming product leaders product managers and uh, how they they should navigate their path to their growth yeah sure um well there's probably a lot i would would offer i think well let, let me start with something a little bit more tactical which is uh you know I do talk to a lot of people who ask about um hey I'm not sure what my career path should look like and so you know what I do tell them to do is just think about what have you done that you've liked what have you done that you've not liked what are some of the jobs that look interesting or that you could imagine or want to to be doing in I don't know call it 5 or 7 years and we kind of use a little bit of the vision led framework concepts here which is like right. go figure out what is that dream job and what is the vision for what you were you want to be in a few years and then work backwards from there and say well what are some of the experiences or skills you need to get to that role hopefully you can talk to a few people who are in a role like that or similar you know and understand their path and then say like well Okay so in in you know we have a PM skills assessment that we use to kind of help certain you know people that we coached with this in particular which is like wow I really haven't done a lot with financials or pricing and I think I have to have that experience in order to get into a, like a CPO role okay so when are you going to get it is it now is it later and like all those things but like it's it, I think part of it is being intentional about that gap analysis of what are the skills you need to get to where you want to get where you want to go and then what what are your stepping stones to like get there right and it doesn't all have to come from one you know job or role sometimes people take lots of different paths to get into the role that they want um but it, it's helpful to sort of have a rough sense of where you think that that role you know how you're going to map that out um and so i think that's one is just to be be thoughtful about where you're headed and how you're going to get there um i think too on the leadership side i think i think the hardest part of getting stepping into the product executive roles is really like there's a new set of stakeholders right so like the board as an example if you're you know stepping onto an executive team is a whole new stakeholder that a lot of people just are, are they don't have much interaction with right uh, or they're shielded from <laughs> maybe is a better way to put it um and yeah. so i think that's like that was a you know kind of a big big transition um 
And, and with that comes, again, I think it's all the things we were talking about, which is the ability to articulate what was the decision, what choices, and rationalize why this is the path, and like, and build, you know, inspire people and build confidence in you as a leader that you you've done your homework and research, you understand the market, you understand the customer base, you understand the business well enough to to be the person to to step up and say, um, I have a I have a thought on where we should go, and let me tell you why, and, and you know, to to get buy in and inspire them. Right, right. That's definitely a great conversation, uh, Rajesh. And uh, that's a great summary and a great uh, experience that you have shared from, from whatever projects you have worked on and from the book as well. Uh, it's a great learning for me as well as uh, I'm sure for the audience as well. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation. It was very helpful. Uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, of course. No, thank you, Anu, for, for having me and for doing this for the product community. I know it takes time on your end as well to, to put these things together. So really appreciate it and enjoyed being here.